to read out of Luke chapter 2 this morning. So turn in your Bibles. We're not in Amos today. Luke chapter 2, we'll read verses um, 2 through 17. So it's going to be a long reading, but I think you'll appreciate it on Christmas Eve. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 17. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with his wife Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. So the angel said to them, Do not fear, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the shepherds, I'm sorry, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told concerning this child. Father, help us, God, to be heralds for the peace that you brought to us as the angels were and as the shepherds were. May we herald this message in this new year, Lord, unashamedly, boldly, and proudly telling people where they can find the living water. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tracy's going to have to learn sign language. <laughs> she was pointing at these lights last night. I mean, she said, spotlights. <laughs> and I don't read lips. She knows that. <laughs> All right. So we're going to look at the, the, the history and just kind of uh, do a more of a Bible study this morning on Luke chapter 2 and then make some application as well because the, the Bible is, is, is written... Um, for us to live it, but it's also written in a time, it's written in a geographic location, and it's written in a certain uh, style, and Luke is one of my favorite authors. Uh, I've just got to admit that when I uh, 
point people to the New Testament, if I know that they are analytical, I will always tell them to read the Gospel of Luke. Um, I coached a young man uh, many, many years ago, and he was, he was a genius. Um, went to Scotland after he finished his undergraduate where I was coaching and got his PhD and came back to the same university and actually coached my son, which was kind of a unique thing. But I, I knew his intellect, and I knew he was a skeptic, and so I told him to read the Gospel of Luke as if you were reading a history. And he came to know Jesus through reading the Gospel of Luke. He was a, a agnostic when I met him. His family was Roman Catholic, but he really didn't practice anything. And it was Luke's style of writing that grabbed him. And so uh, Luke is a historian, a man that was knighted. His name was Sir William Ramsey, uh, knighted by the Queen of England because he defended the Christian faith when Christianity was really under attack, especially by <clears throat> what is called higher criticism or uh, textual criticism that, that denied the inerrancy of scripture and denied the original authorship of the Bible. Uh, it, it originated in Germany um, and it was called the Wellhausen view of the Bible where none of the authors really are the authors. It was all just piecemeal put together by different documents. But when you come to the Gospel of Luke, that, that theory just falls apart um, because you have to know the history to date these things. And you have to be accurate because you're putting down the names of governors. Quirinius, the governor of Syria, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that everyone should be registered for a taxation, a census, uh, that Jesus began his earthly ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So we can date those things with incredible accuracy. And so we know when Christ lived. We know when, when he uh, walked this earth. We, knew who, we know who was the, the, the governors were. And so I, I like the way Luke writes. And he starts out in his introduction, and he says, For as much as many have taken in hand to write an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled in our life right now, and he says, so I, having a perfect understanding from the very beginning, interviewed eyewitnesses. And he's writing to most excellent Theophilus. And I think Theophilus was a real Greek individual. Um, some people think that he, it was maybe a code name because Theophilus, Theos is the word for God, Phileo is the term for love. And so some people think it was a code name for lovers of God. But it, it, that just doesn't really fit the way he wrote it because he said, I'm writing so that you know, and you is in the singular, you know the certainty wherein the things that you were instructed. And then he writes the book of Acts as a companion book. And he says, the former treaties I have made, Theophilus, as he begins the book of Acts. Now, we know that the book of Acts ended right around 62 A.D. And the reason we know that is because Paul is under house arrest and he was released from that house arrest, and then he was arrested a second time and put in a dungeon, and that's where he was executed. And we know that this first imprisonment, he was in a, under a house arrest. He had his own rented apartment where he lived for two years. So that dates the book of Luke earlier than the book of Acts. 
So we're pushing the book of Luke into the 50 AD category. And he's saying many have already written accounts of the life of Jesus. So that pushes the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark possibly into the 40s. And this is significant. Uh, I was talking with Brendan and Caleb in our Sunday school class, if you want to call it. It wasn't really, it was, we just kind of hung out back there. But we were talking about reasons for the belief in the resurrection. And this is just a sort of a, a, a freebie. It's not in the sermon, but you guys can, it's, you know, I just kind of give this as, you know, free gratis. But there are five E's that you can defend the resurrection from. And one of the E's is that he was executed. All liberal skeptics of the Bible acknowledge that Jesus Christ was executed under Pontius Pilate. Josephus writes this. Tatticus, the Roman historian, writes this. Pliny the Younger writes this. These are secular authors, not God-fearing men and women. Uh, the, the critics of, of Judaism confirm this in their own writings, that this Jesus was a, was a counterfeit, and therefore he was put to death. There's no doubt, historically, that Jesus was executed. We know that he was dead by John's writing, that when a side was pierced, which Roman soldiers did to authenticate that a man was executed, and that the execution had been fully uh, I don't know, it was fully executed, <laughs> for a better, lack of a better word. Um, so that's the first E. I'm going to be, I, I just get gabby, I'm so sorry, because this isn't even my sermon. <laughs> but it, the, the second E, the tomb was empty. You could have disproven Christianity, dispelled this whole religious superstition by simply producing a body. Matthew's gospel tells us that the guards who were around the tomb were paid off. And Matthew writes this, this is known even to this day. So Matthew writing very early says, this is common knowledge. You don't write that unless you are certain because you're writing 10 years after the event and it could have been so easily disproven. Matthew's gospel would have been completely discredited. So we know that he was executed. We know that the tomb was empty. We know that the writings of Jesus were early, the third E. How do we know that? Because Luke wrote right around 50 AD, and Paul quotes Luke in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. He says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain. That's your preacher, by the way. I'm your ox up here, and you don't muzzle me. You better not. <laughs> but then he says, the labor is worthy of his hire. He's quoting Luke chapter 10. So that's how early the gospel of Luke was written, and Luke is writing from what other people have already written. So he's quoting Mark, Matthew, and early source documents about Jesus. So that's the third E. So I'm not going to, yeah, I'll go ahead and give you the other ones. I don't want you to keep you in suspense. The fourth E is, see if I can remember. I know the last E. The last E is the emergence of Christianity. There's no way to explain the emergence of Christianity without the resurrection. 
they would have stopped following Jesus completely. You remember the two men on the road to Emmaus in the Gospel of Luke? They are sad. They are downcast. Why? Because they thought Jesus was going to be the deliverer of Israel. They had given up hope because an executed, dead Messiah was worthless to them. The only explanation for his execution, the early writings, I shouldn't have gone down this road. <laughs> um, the empty tomb. What was the fourth E? Ah, thank you. Eyewitness accounts. The fourth, that was the fourth E. Luke says here in this introduction, from the beginning, those who delivered them to us being eyewitnesses. That word for eyewitness, you'll never guess what it is, because I would have never guessed it either. The Greek word is autopsy. Isn't that interesting? It's only used by Luke. Do you know what Luke's occupation was? He was a doctor. And we know that from Colossians chapter 4, where Paul lists all those who are of the circumcision, and then he says the Gentiles, and he says, Luke, the beloved doctor, is still with me here while I'm in prison. So he uses medical terms. That's another reason why we know that he was the author. But he uses this word autopsy. And what that meant in the original, that this was forensic science that he was doing. It, and, and, the, and the word that he uses for events, those events that have been fulfilled among us, it seemed to me to have a perfect understanding of all things, to write to you an orderly narrative. So Luke tells us what he wrote, he tells us how he wrote it, and he tells us why he wrote it. So if we look at verse 4 of chapter 1, it says that you might know the certainty of the things in which you were instructed. Some other things about Luke's gospel that I want to just share with you. You know, we, we hear the term synoptic gospel, and we know what synoptic means or synonymous. It means it's the same. And so Luke is lumped together as a synoptic gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the, called the synoptics, where John, 90% of the gospel of John is unique to John. But I never realized this until I started to study for this teaching today, that 60% of Luke is only found in Luke's gospel. So Luke is writing with a different theological bent from all the other authors. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and he presents Jesus as the King and the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. There are more Old Testament prophecies found in Matthew than any other gospel. Mark is writing to the Roman mindset and the word immediately is over and over again in the book of Mark because the Romans were looking for a fast-paced servant. And it's just, Jesus did this, and immediately this happened. And then Jesus went there, and immediately this happened. So you, you, then you get to the Gospel of Luke, and Luke includes stories that are so unique to him because Luke, as a Gentile, is showing that Christ came to those who are 
disenfranchised, to those who are marginalized by society, those who were outcasts, those who didn't fit in. And you find this sprinkled everywhere in the Gospel of Luke. It starts out in the very beginning when he talks about Elizabeth. He says that Elizabeth's reproach by man has finally been lifted off of her. He is interested in letting us know that these poor people that feel like they just have no clout, they have no voice, that God cares about them. When Mary gives her magnificent song in Luke chapter 1, let me read to you what she says. Mary says this, He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He, God, has put down the mighty from their seats. He exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Luke was so interested in portraying Jesus as reaching out to the marginalized that in Luke's gospel, he reports Jesus' interaction at the house of Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. And the Pharisee looks at Jesus and he says, if you were truly a prophet, he's thinking this in his mind, you would know what kind of woman this is. This woman came in and it's only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. She comes and she breaks ointment at the feet of Jesus and she wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair and her tears. And then he tells this long parable to Simon about two debtors. And he gets the point of it. And then he says to her, I'm a guest in your house. You haven't given me anything to eat. You've given me nothing to drink. You've not washed my feet. You've not done anything that normally a customary guest in the Eastern culture would have done. And yet this woman who is a harlot has not ceased to weep and to wash my feet with her tears and hair. And he says, and he turns to her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Luke stops a funeral procession. Because the widow of Nain is walking out of town grieving. She's lost her husband. She's lost her only son. She doesn't even ask for a miracle. And Jesus, moved with compassion, turns to the woman and he stops the bearer of this, of, of this, um, this corpse. And he turns to the young man and he says, arise. And so Jesus is always reaching out to those who are just on the periphery, who feel like they have no voice whatsoever. In another story... Ten lepers are healed. It's only found in the Gospel of Luke. Who comes back to thank Jesus? A Samaritan. And he tells the Samaritan leper, your sins are forgiven. You have been made whole. The story of the Good Samaritan, that's unique to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus in this story, and Luke incorporates this into his Gospel because he wants us to know that these are the people that Jesus also came to save and to care about. Luke tells us uh, of a, a parable of the ambitious guest who comes and he finds the best seat. And Jesus says in that parable, those who will humble themselves, they are the ones that will be exalted. And then he follows it up with another story. He says, when people come to you and they have needs, don't go and find people that can pay you back. But you go out and you find the poor the lame, the maimed, and the blind, and you take care of them because they can't pay you back. 
And all of these stories are found in the Gospel of Luke because Luke wants to emphasize Jesus' humility and his humanity. And then we get to the story of Luke chapter 2, this historical account, and we see that Jesus' family also subjected themselves to this decree of a Roman emperor. Taxation was such an offense to the Jewish people. Quirinius was the governor of Syria, Luke tells us. For many, many years, Luke was criticized by the higher critics saying that Quirinius was not the governor of Syria when this registration or this taxation was given. Because we know by Roman documents that Quirinius was the governor of Syria in 8 AD. That's almost 12 years earlier. How could this be a decree from Caesar Augustus when Jesus was born? We know that also from the, the writings of Luke. Now, Luke is not an idiot. Luke is, is a, a very precise and meticulous historian. And Luke knows when Quirinius was the governor of Syria because in Luke chapter 5, verse 37, he tells about a revolt that happened. Remember Gamaliel? And he calls in uh, the, 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 the high court, the Sanhedrin, because they want to execute the apostles. And Gamaliel says, whoa, whoa, let's, let's hold off on this. Let's, let's pull back. There were other people that led revolts. They died, and their, um, their exploits came to nothing. He says, during the days of Quirinius, there was a taxation and there was a revolt. And that guy died and it came to nothing. So let's be careful what we do to these disciples of Jesus. We've executed his leader. And if this thing isn't from God, it's just going to blow over just like everything else had. So Luke knew that there was a taxation in 8 AD. So he's, he, he's not going to contradict himself in the Gospel of Luke. Archaeologists have found a slab of stone with Quirinius being the governor in 4 BC. That was the precise time of this decree by Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus' decree was somewhere between um, 6 and 4 BC. By the time it finally matriculated down to Judea, it was probably in 4 BC. Now, how does all of this work? Well, our, our, our dating of our calendar is slightly off because Jesus began his earthly ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. We know that again from the Gospel of Luke. So Luke tells us that Jesus began his ministry being about, rough ballpark picture here, uh, figure, about being 30 years of age. So the 11th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when was that? That was, I'm sorry, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar is when Jesus started his ministry. That was about 26 to 29 AD. You say, well, why such a broad uh, uh, dating? And here's the reason why. 
Caesar Augustus knew that the Roman Senate was going to appoint the new emperor. Caesar Augustus circumvented that by having Tiberius, his son-in-law, be the co-regent with him, and he was the co-regent from 11 to 14 AD. So in the 11th year, at 15, that means that was 26 AD when John the Baptist, 27 AD is when Jesus started his public ministry. Three years later, right around 30 AD, Jesus was crucified. And all of this, all of these facts, all of this comes from the Gospel of Luke. But it's interesting that Luke starts out saying that even Jesus' parents and his entire heritage, they willingly submitted themselves to this odious decree by Caesar Augustus that the Judean people had to come under his overship, under his lordship. We know that this was very, very distasteful to the Jewish people because the Jews tried to discredit Jesus when they brought to him the question, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he knew the Jewish mindset that we don't pay taxes. We're, we, we hate the Roman invasion of our country. And so Jesus wisely says, well, hand me the coin whose inscription's on it. And Jesus says, says Caesar, doesn't it? So you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God. And that, it, it, it just it took away the, their argument. Well, what do we say to that? They, they didn't have anything to say. You shut them up. But that just shows you how the Jewish people, how revolting this idea of a decree was. And so Luke tells us the humility of Mary and Joseph, the humanity of them, that they were willing to submit to this government. But it also shows us the providence, the sovereignty, and the very finger of God. They were from Nazareth. How are they going to fulfill the ancient prophecy of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2? But thou Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from everlasting. The eternal God was going to be born in Bethlehem. How was God going to work this out? Well, God didn't wander up there in heaven wringing his fingers. Oh, what am I going to do? No. God providentially raised up Caesar Augustus. His name was Octavius. There were three emperors of Rome vying for that position. And Octavius came and rose to the top because he was an industrious man, but he was also a brutal leader, and he was also a man that wanted to expand the empire, to expand its infrastructure, to expand Pax Ramona all over the empire, that is Roman peace. And how did he do it? By raising up an army and raising up resources. So this was not just a taxation registration, it was also to draft men into the military. And so God in his providence brings this man to the throne, as it says in Proverbs. The heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. As the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he desires. And so we see that in Luke's introduction here, that even 
his parents were subjected to this decree and they willingly submitted to it. Nazareth of Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea. This is what an ancient writer says about this. The village which the finger of providence had long before pointed out as the destination of the place of the Messiah's birth. So entirely was Augustus ministering by divine pleasure while the exercise of his imperial power followed the dictates of his unfettered will. Now that's a mystery, and that's the only way I can explain it, that God is divine in his sovereign power, but God's not up in heaven moving the chessboard, manipulating people. He lets their unfettered free will fall into his divine plans. Only an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God can do that. That is the God that we worship. Joseph and Mary were both descendants of royalty, and yet they submitted themselves to the decree of the Roman Empire. Now, how do we know that both of them were descendants of royalty? Again, this is an incredible story of God's foresight, God's prophecy, and God's foreordaining of events to bring Christ at the right time, at the right place, to do the right thing for you and I. In Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30, there is a curse on Jeconiah, or Coniah is his other name that he's known by, and that curse was that there would never be someone to sit on the throne of David. Whoa! How is the ancient prophecy of Samuel going to come to pass? That there would always be someone from David's family sitting on the throne and the Messiah would be born from the city of David, from David's family, and yet God not violate his curse on Jeconiah. How was God going to manage to do that? Well, again, God wasn't just worried in heaven, wondering, how am I going to do this? No, God sent his angel, Gabriel, to Mary. And this is why. Luke's genealogy is nothing like Matthew's genealogy because it is Mary's genealogy. And if you trace Mary's genealogy, you know who it goes back to? It goes back to the brother of King Solomon, not to Solomon. So she is in the Davidic line, but Joseph's genealogy goes back to Solomon. So he has the right to rule and reign, and Joseph adopts Jesus as his son because he is not the father. And so God fulfills all of this. This is how amazing our Bible is. I hope this gives you confidence in the word of God, that you can trust it, that you can study it, that you can build your life upon it. So both of them, being lineage of a king, yet submit to this Roman emperor. The humility of Christ in his birth. Now, every child in Eastern cultures was wrapped in swaddling clothes. And so Jesus didn't circumvent any of his identity with humanity. He identifies with you and I in 
every aspect. He knows what it's like being a child. He knows what it's like being a teenager. Jesus knows what it's like being an adult. He knows everything that you could ever possibly face. Jesus didn't by-step any of it. That's exactly what the devil wanted him to do when he tempted him. If you are God, you bow down and worship me, and I will give you all this. And Jesus was not about to circumvent any of the suffering, any of the cross, any of the sorrow, any of the agony, any of that separation from God on behalf of you and I. So the humility in his birth, he was placed in a feeding trough, the king of kings. There was no room in the inn, so he was born in a cave, literally attached to this inn. And he revealed himself to, of all people that he chose to reveal himself, he didn't go to Herod's palace. He didn't go to the Roman Senate. Who was it that Jesus announced him to but just a bunch of sheep herders out in a field in the middle of the night? This is Luke trying to tell us this is our Savior. He's humble. He's meek. And he comes to all those who are expecting him. That's something else unique in Luke's gospel. When Jesus was taken into the temple to be circumcised, and when he was taken back to do all the sacrifices, we know that he was from a poor family because they offered pigeons for the sacrifice. We find in the book of Leviticus that that was acceptable if it was a poor family. So here we have our Savior born into a poor family, and who announces his birth? A widow. And Simeon the prophet. And you know what these two people were waiting for? They were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were waiting for Jesus. They were waiting for Mashiach, the anointed one. They were believers. They were Old Testament saints. These were the ones that the father had in his hand and was giving to the son because they were born again by faith. They were Old Testament Christians, you might say. And I believe that these shepherds out there in the fields, looking at the stars tonight, they were having theological discussions. Now, I may be just putting in some conjecture here, but by Luke's gospel and by John's gospel, we know that Jesus was revealing himself purposely to those who were believers already. In John's chapter, John chapter 2, he says, they, a group of people believed in him when they saw the miracles. But it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them and he didn't need the testimony of any man. This is unique time period, that what, what's going on in the Gospels. So the shepherds are the first ones that hear this message. Luke accounts uh, this theme of reaching the lowly again by sharing this fact with us. It showed the Old Testament believers were now coming to faith in the gospel of who Christ was. The gospel was preached by the angels. It said, fear not, great joy. This is the message, and it's universal. It's for everyone. The extent of this good news is the world. Its application, however, is for those who believe. He is the Savior, Savior and Messiah, one and the same. You will find a babe lying in a feeding trough. The foolishness of this message 
a king, a creator in a feeding trough. God is bringing to nothing the wisdom of this world. He's confounding the wise and he's revealing himself unto babes, it says in Luke, for this was good in God's sight. Now I want us to close by just looking at the response because this should be our response this morning. Verse 15. So let's pick it up in verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem. That was their response. Notice the word let. That tells us that there's been a mood shift in the original languages. It's no longer the indicative mood, but it's a mood that, that shows a desire, a will, a passion to do something that is exhorting one another. And we see the one another right before this let. And it's pleading almost, let us now go. It's, a, it, it, it's not the indicative, so it's not showing something that's reality. It's showing something that's a volitional decision that they are milling over in their minds and they are deciding, let us do this thing. Let's make a decision. So the first thing that you and I, when we know truth, there has got to be a volitional act of our hearts and our desires and our will. Let us do something on what we know. We've got to respond to it. So the shepherds are following where the revelation leads them. And that's what I think all of us as believers need to do. We need to willingly submit and follow where God's revelation takes us. Let us go even now, to Bethlehem. And why did they go? They went to see this thing which has come to pass. That shows me faith. The mood now has changed from the subjective mood. That is not reality. That's, that's more a volitional act of our thoughts and our will. Now, to the indicative mood, which is historical and factual. Let us go see this thing. And Luke uses the word pragmatos. Pragmatos means a fact, a reality, rather than conjecture. So their thinking is, let's go see this truth, this factual thing, and let's check it out. We want to know it ourselves. So it's based on revealed truth. And they were not caught up in angelology or angel worship. I think today, if angels worship, came down and told us to, to, to look to the Bible, all we'd be talking about is the, is the angels. I mean, it seems like our current spiritual climate in America and throughout most of, of Western culture, that we're enamored with the supernatural and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But all these supernatural events are pointing to a historical Christ. And we've got to put the emphasis where God wants to put the emphasis. It wasn't on the angels. It wasn't on their appearance. It wasn't the heavenly host singing. Those things were marvelous, yes. But it was 
the babe. It was the Messiah. It was the Savior. It was flesh and blood. It was a human life that they wanted to go and see. They weren't caught up in the emotion, the hype. They went to see truth. They made a decision. Seekers are finders. What did they say? They said, let us go see this thing to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. There's revelation. And they came with haste and they found. Who is it that finds truth? It's the seekers. It's not the lazy. It's not the indifferent. It's not those who just say, well, if God wants to show me, he's going to have to do that. No, these men said, let us go. Let us see what the Lord has revealed to us. And they went with haste and they found. We need to follow that same pattern. And then lastly, another thing that you and I need to follow, they became evangelists. Look at verse 17. Now when they had seen him, the first thing that they did, they made known widely the saying which was told them concerning this child. Several things here we see. The extent, they made it widely known. The content, they told them the things concerning this child. That's the gospel. It's concerning Christ. It's who he is. What did these evangelists know? These, these men didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the gospel of Luke. Of course, it wasn't written, right? They didn't have the gospel. They had nothing. They had the Old Testament. But what they knew about the Old Testament was true about Jesus. And what they understood and what they knew about Jesus, that's what they went and proclaimed. And that's what you and I are supposed to be doing. We don't have to be Bible scholars. We have to know what Jesus Christ has come to do for us. And we share that with others. I want to just bless the church with telling you that last night... My wife was able to talk to a young lady after the service, and she inquired about salvation. And Tracy didn't give her a theology class. She didn't start in Genesis. This woman knew about Jesus. She explained the gospel, and Tracy said, it takes the faith of a grain of mustard seed. Can you do that? She says, yes, I can, and I believe in Jesus. And then she said a prayer to receive Christ as her Lord and Savior. That's a miracle. And that's what God has asked us to do. And it's so simple. What did the shepherds do? They told what they knew concerning Jesus. And what did they know? They knew from the shepherds, or from the angels rather, that this child was going to bring glad tidings and great joy and it was for everyone, and that he was going to be, bring peace on the earth, and that he was going to be a savior because we are lost and we need to be forgiven. They also knew that he was the long-awaited Messiah, and that's what they went out and told. Verse 17, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying, which was told them, concerning this child and notice the reaction verse 18 and all those who heard it marveled at those 
things that were told them by the shepherds. So Luke is writing an incredible story for us. He's showing the humility of Jesus. He's showing the humanity of Jesus. He's showing how Jesus came to an unassuming group of shepherds and how those men then impacted the world around them for Jesus Christ. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you, God, that our Bible that we hold in our hands and that we study is not simply written by man. God, these facts are accurate. The archaeological evidence proves it. The historical evidence proves it. But God, more than that, there is a mystery about an all-powerful, all-knowing, providential, sovereign God who works all things according to his will. That God, we can trust our lives to such a creator. And we can trust our souls to a revelation that is so miraculous. Jesus said it like this. Every little jot and every little tittle is going to be fulfilled. This little obscure prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30. How in the world was God going to bring all that to pass? He brought Mary and Joseph. They were engaged to have a, a married life together. And you brought Jesus from the politically right son, Solomon, but from the genetically right son of Nathan, the brother of Solomon. God, God, this is so incredible. It just makes us marvel. And so when I put my faith in Jesus, I know that it's a real, true gospel. But God, it's not just factual. It's not just evidence. God, you want us to experience you. You want us to know you. The things that you have revealed to us, God, I pray that we will boldly share what we know about our Savior. We pray this for your glory. We pray, God, that, that you're just going to do wonderful things through North Valley Bible Church, God, because we're people that are simply humbling ourselves before you, God. And we thank you. We thank you, God, that you have chosen to reveal them to us in Jesus' name.